Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about Augustine Schmidt and the role of religion in politics. And we're going to talk a little bit about how concepts of unity, uh, specifically unity that exists prior to the creation of the state, have influenced the history of political thought. And we're going to start with Augustine because... Whereas most of the Greeks and the Romans have conceptions of unity that are thoroughgoingly political and see human beings as very much embedded in earthly cities, Augustine argues that our unity, or the ideal unity of a state, is unity around a Christian commonwealth. So it's a kind of religious unity that comes from God and therefore has a metaphysical origin that is... I would say pre-political or transcends the political. It's a unity that is is beyond political unity. And this becomes a quite dominant idea in political thought, the idea that there has to be some kind of religious convergence, religious unity within the state, which is very different from earlier, uh, say, Greek and Roman notions, because in, say, the Greek successor states or the Roman Empire, there were lots of different religions, lots of different gods worshipped, and religious convergence was not a prerequisite for political unity. From Augustine on, and especially into the Middle Ages, religious agreement becomes a defining part of how states are organized and how states legitimate themselves. But as that religious agreement breaks up through the Reformation and entering into early modernity, that unity breaks down. But there are still some political theorists, even some quite contemporary, quite modern political theorists, who want the state to be based around some kind of unity that is prior to the introduction of a constitution, prior to the introduction of civic institutions. And I think a very prominent example of this is Carl Schmitt, the German legal theorist from the interwar period, and he also wrote a bit after the war. Uh, and of course, Carl Schmitt, it, it must be said, supported the Nazi party. That, that always needs to be said before Carl Schmitt is discussed. And for Schmitt, because there was a breakdown in uh, conceptions of God, uh, the political unity could be created or constructed by the, by the citizens, by the subjects, by the, the people, what he called the friends, on any line really that the friends found salient even if that line was from traditional ethical perspectives quite arbitrary or unorthodox. And so this gives rise to a conception of the political that is about drawing lines between friends and enemies uh, with the friends united by a lot of different kinds of things that maybe we don't think are the right kind of criteria upon which to build states. Uh, so that's that's kind of the the main genesis of this episode, to just think about how the importance of religion in politics, 
that comes about beginning with Augustine eventually creates a world where it's possible to end up with things like Carl Schmitt. That sound about right to you guys? Yeah, yeah I, th- I think an interesting part of the uh, story of linking Augustine to Schmidt is um, yeah, the historical context between, because Schmidt was both trying to advance this, as you say, this, this pre-political justification of the political, um, but he was also reacting against what he saw as liberalism's neutralizations and depoliticizations. So how liberalism tries to create this kind of bifurcation between ethics on the one hand and the economy on the other, and therefore loses what the political is. So I think it's an interesting contradiction that in trying to move away from liberalism's supposed uh, vacating of the political space, uh, Carl Schmitt is actually uh, creating another pre-political concept, whereas for liberalism, the pre-political concept is the individual. For Schmitt, the pre-political concept is friend-enemies. And uh, I guess he would push back against that, however, because he would say that politics is friend-enemy distinctions. It's not that these are prior to politics. These are what politics are. But at the same time, the fact that these friend-enemy distinctions will in practice be built on stuff like nationality or other kinds of identity or whatever, in practice, perhaps Schmidt's argument does lead to the same problems which you had with these um, prior political theories that came after uh, the fall of the Roman Empire um, and towards its end. Um, Yeah, yeah. And this is something I want to talk about quite early in the episode, uh, Schmidt takes great pains at the beginning of the concept of the political to distinguish uh, between the political and other things. And so when I talk about pre-political unity, for what I'm calling pre-political is what Schmidt would simply call the political, because for Schmidt, the making of these friends and enemy distinctions is political activity, independent of whether it comes about through an institutional schema of any sort. Now, we've we've also brought on the show this this week a guest, Rafe Gibson, my good friend and uh, an MPhil theology student here at Cambridge who's doing an MPhil on Augustine and has previously worked quite a bit on Germans, although I think he's a little bit newer to Schmidt. Uh, and I want to Talk to him a little bit about this because since Rafe studies theology, I think he is, and since he mm. has worked on a lot of these these theorists, uh, I think he's in a good position to evaluate and perhaps scrutinize to some degree my linking of Augustine with Schmidt. Uh, Rafe, do you think I'm I'm being fair or am I am I being overly hasty in drawing? Oh, I, I think it is very. I think it is very fair. Um, reading through the uh, concepts of the political, there is um, there is a surprising amount of overlap to the point that um, that uh, Schmidt talks about uh, the theologians as people who are incredibly necessary, particularly in the um, period of early human history, for the creation of the friend foe distinction. In mm. that, um, in his opinion, the the requirement of the theologian necessitates having to believe in some way human beings are naturally evil. And whether you agree with the um, idea of humans being primordially sinful or flawed in some way, 
What Schmidt finds so crucial about this is the idea that you will never get a perfect consensus in a sort of political sense in terms of using building secular institutions is never going to be the way that you'll have perfect unity and there will always be enemies that stand in your way be they other religious people or people you believe are secretly enemies within sort of moral enemies or spiritual enemies and that sort of thing and schmidt's classification of the friend and foe um and how then the state um is required as sort of the last great institution that is able to have the uh, legitimacy to make those is very relevant to Augustine because Augustine believes that essentially the state as an institution is legitimized on its ability to protect its citizens from sin in some in some regards to protect them from um behaviors and legislate against those sort of behaviors and also enemies that would prescribe on them unnatural christian uh, unnatural uh, unchristian ways of life and the but where where the crucial uh, difference in that thinking is for augustine and schmidt is is that schmidt believes that fundamentally religion guarantees that phone enemy distinctions continue because you'll never get a consensus while Augustine is very much of the belief that eventually by focusing and um, reversing the materialism of people through mm-hmm. Christian learning, Christian institutions, etc., you will eventually gain a consensus because what divides people is their focus on um, things they desire, things they um, desperately want to be like, and how Augustine always phrases this is something um, as a sort of defacing, is that we have this common humanity through um, the image of God. However, it, our desire for things beyond ourselves and not God, he always specifies this, that God, uh, the return to God is a return to unity, but very much it's our mm. ascription of power, um, and but more specifically, meaning, value in things that are earthly is what divides us. And actually, it is through religion that we begin to achieve uni- unity and universalization, not mm. division, unlike what Schmidt says. But you could easily argue Augustine is being overly confident in the ability of institution of religious institutions to do that. And part of the kind of um, tension within Augustine is that he heavily accepts and he is one of he is quite crucial in saying that and criticizes neoplatonists for believing this that in some way a human being can go beyond the material in terms of live outside it believe believe that in some way you could think within the ideal forms completely live within the ideal he thinks mm. that's simply wrong and in some way trying to make yourself like God, which fundamentally part of the unity he thinks that will be achieved by human beings is accepting that isn't going to be the case. Right, so there is this this notion of earthly fractiousness, earthly division that is overcome through spiritual and theological unity. Mm. And of course, if you got that spiritual and theological unity, then you're back thrown into a realm of earthly division. 
And of course, there are theorists who believe that there's a lot of division, like, say, Thomas Hobbes, who we talked about on the first episode. But one of the things that's very remarkable about Hobbes is that for Hobbes, he never frames the state as a relationship between sovereign and united people. He always frames the state as a relation between sovereign and fractious multitude. For Hobbes, the sovereign can't represent particular people or whole peoples because there's no unity that can exist for Hobbes prior to a state coming into being. Right. And yeah. only when a state comes into being can the unity come into being. And in this way, Schmidt deviates considerably from Hobbes. And so while Hobbes scraps a lot of the religious underpinnings in his political theory that is uh, were more or less universal up until Hobbes, uh, with a few exceptions like, say, Machiavelli, uh, he doesn't go in the same direction Schmidt goes with it. Because for Hobbes, the decline of religious consensus means you've got to return to some kind of politics where the unity occurs at the level of state through the state in much the same way that in, say, the political thought of Plato or Aristotle, the, the unity occurs at the level of state through state. And Schmidt instead goes in a very different direction and says that this just means that there will now be endless, endless theological struggle through mm. the political, through the making of friend-enemy distinctions on the basis of whatever it is that people take to be yeah. their way of life. And their way of life can be whatever they, they think it is for Schmidt, yeah. more or less without limit. But, but the issue for Schmidt is, is that essentially he has faith in the state as an institution that is able to continue the friend-enemy distinctions in a, I want to say unifying way, but very stressed that he does not mean in a universal unifying way, and I think you'll get onto that later. But he does fundamentally believe that the state itself, and he says all significant concepts of the theory of the modern state are secularized theological concepts, yeah. is that at, this, at one level he's saying the state is inherently necessary for continuing the, the right sort of human progress and existence, which is maintaining the political by having friend-enemy distinctions. Yet on, a, on the same level, he's saying that the issue with that is that it's theological and it doesn't have meaning when you remove God. So it mm. seems that on one level, he's saying that the state is necessary to exist, but he's questioning the very meaning of the state, which he then tries to replace with a sort of primordial people or will. Yeah, and in yeah. that sense, he reminds me quite a bit of, uh, of Nietzsche, whom uh, Rafe did his dissertation last year on Nietzsche, uh, in that there's a recognition that there was a role that God was playing and that in the absence there is a void that needs to be filled in some way. And whereas Nietzsche, I think, as we kind of discussed, never really finds a way to fill that void beyond maybe struggle itself mm. for its own sake— Schmidt seems to, and his answer is rather similar to Nietzsche's, but more thoroughgoingly political mm. in emphasis, whereas Nietzsche's is more aesthetic, yeah. I would say. It's, 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 it's yeah. an attempt to synthesize the aesthetic and the political, that in some way the political and the um, aesthetic should um, contribute to each other. 
But I think necessarily, if you look at all the forms and the inspiration uh, that Nietzsche, um, the movements and the people he's inspired, it's very much lent towards one or the other. Either you take it in a very political political sense, in which point the aesthetic suffers and has to completely bend to the will of the political, or the political in has to completely bend to the aesthetic. And you see that in Nietzsche's right. romanticization of the Greek city-states, where the Greek city-states are almost intentionally weakened to increase its dependence on individuals, artists, generals, that sort of thing. But um, I, was, I was interested with the kind of extrapolation of the state. And um, I was wondering, uh, would you mind if I, I, I talked on why specifically August, uh, Augustine's view of the state and why it's, it should be tolerated in a Christian context? Yeah, I'd yeah. Love, to, love to hear your thoughts on that. So um, Augustine is very much of the opinion that um, the state exists in a post-lapsarian world. And now for um, a non-theological person, lapsarian basically means f- the fall, the fall of man when yeah. Adam and Eve uh, rebel against God by eating of the, the tree of knowledge. And for him, Augustine is very interesting as a patristic figure because he he tries to guess what a pre-lapsarian, so pre-fall humans would have looked like. So you have this primordial sense of human beings of sinful, and then you have an almost pre-primordial view of people, which is pre-sin. And very much that essentially one of the only institutions of um, order, other than between God and man, um, well, man to God, is the family. And we don't really get a clear idea of what he believes the family would have necessarily meant. But he does believe that the family would have been a place of order, it would have been a place of harmony, and it would have been a place of education and sort of making sure that your children stay within the right desires, desiring God, desiring knowledge within limits. However, post the fall, you have much more people And now you have a situation where people are much more likely to choose the wrong things. They desire each other. They desire money. They desire all sorts of things and are willing to kill each other, hurt each other for that, which causes inherent disharmony. So you have a lot of institutions that come out of this, like the state, like laws, which exist because of sin but are used to mitigate and control sin. So an interesting line that Augustine analyzes in uh, The City of God is a line by Paul, where Paul calls the law, referring to specifically the, the Ten Commandments, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the Old Testament laws, as the power of sin and what that means. And Augustine's interpretation of this is that the law is good, but you have to accept that the that the law exists because of sin. If sin didn't exist, there would be no law prescribed in this way. And at the same time, there are interesting connotations the law can lead to. For instance, that something forbidden is often the most tempting. And what's kind of interesting from from these sort of little interpretations is that um, Augustine was a hedonist for many years. Um, He struggled heavily with um, um, his addiction to... Um, he was almost a sex addict. He um, 
was around Carthage, drinking, smoking, all that sort of thing, and had a hard time dealing with it. And a lot of his spiritual struggles are him trying to understand what made him behave in that way and trying to figure out what was substantive in his experience. And um, so the state exists as an institution to deal with that. It exists as an institution that is meant to prescribe... Um, the ways to behave, and often by the stick, such that Augustine concludes that the very act of servitude to anything other than God is a result of sin, whether that's employee-employer relations, whether that's to a sovereign, to a legislature, that is all because of sin. And all these institutions come out of sin. That doesn't mean the institutions are necessarily sinful, but they exist because of it. And the issue with... um, power structures like the state is that they are human made and are made to deal with material matters and therefore are not infallible and are very much can be twisted to become power engines of sin so whether you look at ambition whether you look at greed whether you look at wars these are all coming out of institutions that are often built on the best of intentions to reduce suffering to increase unity but within them power urges within people that often causes more disharmony than than they did harmony yeah even even slavery on augustine's view is a product of sin uh, it's it's a difficult difficult thing to have to to have to say and i think this kind of goes into the the issue of the primordiality for Augustine, because on one level, you're having to argue that all these institutions which we have to live in, which often exist for our benefit, come out of the fact that we are in some way flawed and in some way broken, which leads to the fundamental question of can we get better? And also, can we really trust these institutions if they can be as much engines of sin, of harm, as they are alleviators. Mm. And I think this is primarily where, um, I think you've said in the talk, Ben, and things you've written as Augustine as a meta-settler, someone who is trying little by little to move people's concerns away from the political, away from the material, and trying to say, well, at the end of the day, it is the city of man. And the city of man is not eternal. The city of man does not last. And all of its functionality, purpose, and goodness comes from the divine. So instead, we should be aiming for the divine. And I think that is primarily the issue with, with um, kind of worldviews such as Schmidt, is, is that you are essentially having a similar point where you have all these institutions which are meant to serve a different purpose beyond themselves if they serve themselves they're inherently circular so what do they serve and for schmidt it's to deal with a will it's to represent a legitimate will and provide humans purpose through friend foe distinctions but you can evidently ask like with nietzsche well what's the point in these friend foe distinctions especially for me when i was reading schmidt and the concept of the political where he suggests that one of the biggest threats to humanity, an existential threat, would be the existence of an universal ideology that actually unites people and all the enemies Mm. were crushed. 
inherently, yeah. you would think in the rhetoric of someone like that, you would want to crush your enemies. But he seems to suggest that actually, cynically, you should keep your enemies alive as a as an as something that consistently will create purpose, intuition. Which, you know, for me seems a little dishonest and a little counterintuitive, but I understand the logic behind it. It reminds me a little bit of the Orwellian War in 1984 that mm. goes on and on forever. And they tell you mm. that now we're at war with these people and now we're mm. at war with those people. And who even knows if any of it's true are, yeah. and if any of those people even still exist. Uh, just endlessly conjuring enemies to maintain the unity of the state. And I also, as I'm listening to you talk and thinking about, well, for Augustine, right, if the state is uh, becomes an engine of sin, if it no longer aims at his preferred purpose, then it becomes thoroughgoingly evil. Mm. And from, of course, from a religious standpoint, Schmidt in permitting states to unify around things that are not religious and not moral in character, but even verging on the straightforwardly aesthetic, mm. like, say, uh, the nation or the race or, or what have you. Um, in that way, from any moral standpoint, Schmidt's view is the view that the state ought to be what any moral or religious person would consider to be an engine of sin. Mm. Mm. Well, it's also Schmidt's... Um, specific point that he says that state action shouldn't be and connects to my point previously about the kind of strange, confused rhetoric basically made for the state and the will's continued existence is that Schmidt specifies that state activities shouldn't be rationalised at all in some ways. They shouldn't be tried to put into an overall framework. They shouldn't be based on ethics because ethics and all those things are post-political. The political does not need to cohere to a set of ethics. It doesn't need to cohere to a set of rules, rational or otherwise. It just sort of exists. Yes, which makes it a very primordial kind of thing, a very sentimental thing of, of fundamental antagonisms rather than something that is rationalized or reasoned out. Hmm. And it seems to all stem from this need for the state to have some further justification that is outside of itself. I think for me, what I found particularly interesting, um, especially with Schmidt's uh, um, associations with Nazism, was um, Schmidt's writings on the Weimar Republic and how he actually tried to advise... Uh, President Hindenburg um, and various other um, centrists at the time that that the very problem with their institution was that they were ex- too accepting of extremist aspects of the Reichstag. They allowed communists, they allowed Nazis, they allowed various other parties that were very similar and some of them ended up being coalitioned with one another to exist despite the fact the very statement of many of their manifestos was the destruction of democracy. That in, that in various ways the Weimar Republic had violated the friend-enemy distinction by totally allowing enemies within 
who were of existential threat to the existence, not only of centrist politics, but in very real cases like in the Night of the Long Knives, threat to their lives to exist, and various suggestions that um, Schmidt made to various high-profile politicians to continue to use emergency powers in some ways to dismantle many of these extremist parties. Right. And of course, then he later on goes on to become a supporter of the Nazis. And this is one of the things that is worth remembering about Schmidt, that Schmidt will always say, whatever side you're on in politics, you should recognize the enemy and crush the enemy, whatever side you're on. And so there is a tendency for people to want to say, read Schmidt from the left and say, read Schmidt as someone who's making an argument for why the workers should crush the capitalists, or read Schmidt uh, as someone who's arguing why the liberals should crush the fascists and the communists, uh, if you're reading Schmidt from the center. But in all of these cases, what, what has to be remembered is that Schmidt is basically agnostic about these values. Schmidt just wants people to take the political as he understands it seriously and really, really go after the people in groups that conflict with them. Hmm. I think the only, I think, and this is where um, I think a serious criticism of Schmidt is, is valid, is that the exception to this is liberalism, which he seems to accept yeah. as a unique evil. And it, is, it gets into this very Nietzschean problem of they're the wrong kind of struggling. Why? Oh, because I think they're going to end struggling. But you could argue the same for a lot of other ideologies, like communism tries to establish equality of persons. But that's not the wrong kind of... Only liberalism is. Because for him, liberalism undermines the legitimacy... What little institutions that could be become sovereign, because he doesn't believe there is the sovereign. There are simply institutions that become sovereign because they align to collective wills is that liberalism is the only one he feels is the existential threat to any institution like that because they, under, they aim for compromise, in his opinion. They try and aim for universal consensus. But more importantly, they undermine their very legitimacy by their existence. And he talks about that they very uh, contradictorily, contradictorily argue that there is a sort of universal, primordial liberalism, you know, everyone has rights, etc. Um, but at the same time, everyone is valid to their opinion and everyone has some sort of right to express that. And I think one of the best examples of this in modern times, um, I would say personally, uh, going on from Woodrow Wilson at the end of the First World War and his big push for self-determination is devolution, in which you have liberal forces who often get elected often are able to get to positions of power, who in, in various ways seem to dismantle the power of those institutions by saying, oh, well, these need to be devolved, and devolution just leads to further devolution. And in various ways, liberalism has legitimated the dismantling of what Schmidt would call the most important sovereign, well, not sovereign, but legitimate institutions that can yeah, be said to I have think- any collective will. Yeah, I think people often find elements of Schmidt's critique of liberalism persuasive, in part because you don't have to be a Schmidtian to find the tendency for liberalism to make bad compromises with political factions that you think are harmful. 
but the the important thing is is that there are lots of different ways in which a political faction can be taken to be harmful. The problem with with Schmidt is that Schmidt doesn't have a standard for what distinguishes in any meaningful sense good from bad or harmful from not harmful beyond whatever it is that you happen to believe or whatever it is that you happen to think. Mm. And and so while he seems to have this unique hatred for liberalism, he doesn't do this out of a desire to promote the left or to promote the right at various points in his career he argues for lots of different factions to be crushed by other factions but never extermination which i think is the interesting point i don't think he thinks liberalism should be exterminated as an ideology because it is a useful enemy yes yes perhaps yeah i think that's a good point mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be exterminated provided that it it is denied the opportunity to win I think insofar as Schmidt has any commitment, it is a commitment to struggle. Right. And, it, and the political for him is something which is an arena of struggling. And so in his commitment to defending the continued existence of the political, he is committed mainly to defending struggling. And it's interesting how this, this notion of pre-political unity, which when it is under, underneath a religious umbrella, is a path to ending struggling through the universalization of a religion in Schmidt's hands becomes a path to perpetuating struggle. But it's not the kind of, say, pluralistic debate that you might see in, say, the work of Hannah Arendt, who's very into plurality and the notion of never-ending deliberation. It's not like Jürgen Habermas. These these people have views that are much more liberal. What Schmidt doesn't want is an endless debate. He wants fighting. He wants a, the possibility of killing. It's not enough for Schmidt that the, that the conflict be restricted to verbal sparring because for Schmidt, verbal sparring doesn't take the conflict seriously enough. For Schmidt, if you really have a political difference with someone, then they have to be a threat to what you take to be your way of life. And so... You can't even permit them an opportunity to talk. And it's interesting because I see a lot of people invoking anti-fascism because their feeling is that there are lots of people on the right whose speech is so dangerous to their way of life that those people on the right shouldn't even be allowed to talk. And yet I don't see most of those people on the right who are being targeted in that way making the same argument in reverse. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that point about pluralism because uh, Schmidt also admits that his concept is slightly, if not, if not quasi-liberal in the sense that he says the concept of the political yields pluralistic consequences. In the, Is there a sense then in which... Schmidt's friend-enemy distinctions is uh, is is uh, something that Schmidt wants to be uh, thoroughly opposed to liberalism, but in reality invokes some of the same contests between either individual persons or individual groups as the essence of politics, with the distinctiveness of Schmidt's contention being it's about group struggle and the separateness of groups breeding struggle rather than... Um, 
multicultural cooperation? Is there a sense in which that separation and segmentation between friends and enemies is something that is um, another movement away from ancient concepts of politics? Well, yeah, I think that, that, that and this is where Augustine, where Augustine and Schmidt very much align, that there is this emphasis here that the state needs to be possessed mm. utterly by a group. And for Schmidt, it can be any group. And for Augustine, it has to be by Christianity. It has right. to be a Christian commonwealth. Otherwise, the state will become allied to sin. And Schmidt says that if your state or, or a state that is in your neighborhood isn't committed to a way of life that works for you, that from your standpoint, the state is committed to sin. Mm. He, says, he says things like that. He makes those kinds of analogies. Mm. Because um, Schmidt fundamentally doesn't believe, unlike Hobbes, that a state is legitimate on its own existence. He feels that right. a state is only legitimate in, in the fact that, as Ben says, represents a certain interest or um, a primordial sort of being or um, uh, essence. And for Schmidt, yeah. I think this epitomizes the best with the kind of conflation of, uh, not the conflation, but the issue of when a state represents, quote, sin for um, Schmidt is the Weimar Republic, where he felt that at its core, the Weimar Republic was so almost anti-human because it was built on trying to build compromises even with your existential enemies. And at various levels, politically and constitutionally, the Weimar Republic tied its hands to trying to build compromise and trying to do business with your existential enemies when they in realistically should be crushed. And I think politically, you already had this where you had a situation where many people were very able, so people like the Nazi Party, various uh, right-wing and left-wing elements from across parties in Germany were very easy to identify the Weimar Republic as the enemy, but the Weimar Republic was very hesitant to do the opposite with them, far too hesitant for in Schmidt's view, because, you know, you have the Spartacus, is it the Spartacus? I think it's the Spartacus uprising in the yes. 1919, yeah. 1919 yeah. which is a yeah. left-wing yeah. um, uprising against against the Weimar Republic, which the Weimar Republic has to appeal to the Freikorps, which are essentially just right-wing nut jobs with guns. You have the Kapuch, which uh, the Weimar Republic doesn't try and crush, it, it, though it is debatable whether they would have been able to, um, has to resort to a strike. Only really the 1923 Munich Putsch by Adolf Hitler is crushed, but then most of those people get incredibly hesitant jail sentences. I think Hitler was sentenced to four years and then got released after 12, and he was essentially living in a hotel he lived in a castle, but he had like a full, like luxurious room, etc. And particularly an issue from this, from a German's perspective, is that the Weimar Republic, for many people on the right, was built on what is called Dolchstoss, which means stab in the back. Which very much the Weimar Republic was identified as the enemy because it was seen that this liberal force only came into power by stabbing the German army in the back and signing some behind the behind the scenes treaty with the Allies. Is that already in its formation, the Weimar Republic was identified from as an existential enemy to the right in aspects of the left, and I think 
Schmidt would have been fine with this. The issue is that the Weimar Republic just sort of sits there and takes it. It just goes, okay, fine, there are going to be these extremist parties, but we can compete against them in elections and we can sometimes do coalitions with them. We can sometimes control them, except if they somehow get the upper hand and then kill us all. You know, that's the issue, is is that the Weimar Republic just tolerates its enemies. It doesn't crush them. There are even some elements where Schmidt is quite happy with constitutional democracies because he believes that in a constitution, as soon as there is a threat to the constitution itself, it has to be dealt with outside of the constitution, often by military means. Constitutions allow for violence. They allow for the enforcement of it by, as he says, power of guns or power of weapons but the issue is is that weimar feels that the loyalty to its to its constitution the loyalty to the republic is in tolerating its biggest existential enemies and that is why the weimar republic is illegitimate yeah yeah when i'm trying to illustrate the difference to undergraduates between a state that's based on a kind of primordial unity and a state that is not. I often use Germany and the Roman Empire as points of comparison, because in Germany, the unity of the German state is based on the notion that there is some kind of German people that has some kind of shared German cultural content, some German ethnicity, some set of beliefs or behaviors or tendencies that unite them or that they share. And the thing about, of course, if you think back to a state like the Roman Empire, it has very, uh, an immense amount of diversity, a huge amount. It has so many different people who speak so many different languages, who are from so many different backgrounds. And the thing that unites them all is simply the fact that they recognize the same emperor, that they recognize the same political framework as legitimate. And that's as much unity as the Roman state demands. And because the Roman state demands so little thick content, it is able to include a huge number of different sorts of people. And when Hobbes is, has, is talking about kings, uh, Hobbes makes the argument that it's very foolish for a king to kill people just because they don't like the way they look or they don't like what they believe when those people are willing to obey the king. Because for Hobbes, as long as you're willing to obey the king, then you're a perfectly useful subject to a king. And so it would be stupid, it would be immensely foolish for the king to start throwing away subjects just because he doesn't like the way they look or he doesn't like their religion, as long as they're they're obeying. And so there's this distinction I like to draw between enemy of the people and enemy of the state. Or an enemy of the state is someone who doesn't obey the state, who threatens the state's order. And an enemy of the people is someone who is out of alignment with some thick cultural content. Some sort of uniformity. Right, out of alignment with the uniformity that is being used to ground the state. But they may be otherwise completely law-abiding. But in these states that are based on there being primordial unity— if you're out of alignment with the primordial unity, that itself is grounds for naming you an enemy, regardless of whether or not you're law-abiding. Mm. And I think that's what really separates these medieval states where Christianity is considered the unifying feature uh, from states like the Roman Empire, 
where it's based on everybody recognizes that Augustus is the princeps. Mm. And a similar kind of thing here, it's, it's based on, or for Schmidt, he thinks it ought to be based on some kind of shared set of German aesthetic values. And what bothers him is that the German state is trying to be more all-encompassing than that. Yeah. Right? Well, it's also, I, I think it was interesting, the point he makes about how he believes, quote, the legal runs in contradiction to the political and that he believes that liberal democracies increasingly try and make the political procedural. They try and in, in a political, in, in a sense, they are trying to deheat the issue. They're like, Oh, well, this isn't a political question. This isn't about struggling. This can be dealt with by procedure, by laws and that sort of thing. Hmm. And this is what the Roman Empire does. It tries mm. to export its legal system everywhere. For the Romans, Romanization is recognition of Roman law and adherence to Roman law. But Schmidt, and, but that's but, what's interesting is, is that Schmidt believes that's anti-political, yet for, in aspects of his political theory, that is very political in that it is unifying and makes a friend-enemy distinction because your friends are those who follow the law and your enemies are those who are barbarians. Yeah, and that seems to him to not be a sufficient friend-enemy distinction. He wants it to encompass a whole way of life rather than merely adherence to state, adherence to law. But I think it's that sort of question of, especially with a lot of his focus on the 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 1700s and the French Revolution, that sort of thing, is I'm not sure whether he believes that's possible to have a purely unification based on something like law. And it's interesting how it has become so routine for people to view that as basically impossible now. Uh, We've got a topic in uh, Paul 11, my my third year course on political philosophy and the history of political thought since 1890 Mm. uh, called uh, Patriotism, Nationalism, and Postcolonialism. And there's a serious debate there about you know, is nationalism okay? Uh, is it not okay? What about patriotism? Is patriotism different? And there are a few different permutations of trying to square this liberal nationalism, civic nationalism, patriotism, civic patriotism. Yeah. And a, a lot of these arguments are about precisely this question. Can you have a unity that is based around commitment to a set of political institutions Or does this unity need to have a lot more to it? Does it need to have some more content? And I think that that Christianity in the theocratic era of Western political thought and nationalism, uh, as uh, you transition from one to the other, become these kinds of thick unifiers. Mm. And once the, the notion that we could have a thickly unifying state that would reflect back at us, things that we believe matter became common currency in Western thought, it became very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Mm. And there are a lot of political theorists who have tried at varying points to make the argument for a kind of political unity that is more thoroughgoingly civic. Mm. And I would put Hobbes in that category. I would put uh, Habermas in that category. I would put a, a lot of different political theorists from lots of different positions on all sorts of spectra in that category. But it's been incredibly difficult to sell 
those kinds of models of the state to ordinary people now that they've experienced first theological states and then nation states. Mm. Well, I think it's very hard to to get them to go for it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, Go ahead. Um, Well, I think it's interesting is that essentially, I think the issue is, is that you have that put that extra personal dimension now in that essentially with the Roman state, you followed the law and you agreed on the emperor. But when Christianity gets involved, you have the issue of, well, they could be obeying the law, but what does that mean how they act and how they make other people act? And uniformity then becomes much more important and much harder to achieve because theoretically you could have a situation where, okay, we all agree on the same emperor, we all agree on the same laws, and we all agree, you know, Christ is the son of God and that sort of thing. But immediately with that, with that last point, it becomes much harder because now you have to achieve religious uniformity. And v- the issue is, is that people feel very strongly on uniform, e- e- religious uniformity. S- some people don't mind, but most of the people will care whether they think that someone in their church service believes something radically different, say, about the nature of Christ, the nature of grace, or that sort of thing. And that immediately becomes a divider. So the way of achieving thickness of state comes from, well, not the ways, but the thickness of state comes out of people's fears about personal uniformity, the idea that someone believes something that's dangerous. Because one of the key aspects of heresy and why heresy was condemned so horrifically and people were burnt, tortured and that sort of thing is is that you believe that heretics are not only questioning their souls, but they're endangering other people's souls and even questioning important unifying institutions like the church or even kings. So now immediately with the Christian era and the much bigger theological can of worms that opens about natures and that sort of thing is is that people become much more concerned about what individuals believe and how that makes other people think and i think that's replicated with stuff like whether people are patriotic or not whether they're secretly enemies of the state or whether people are secretly fascist whether they secretly you know want to kill people and want to deport people and that sort of thing it's become this greater obsession with what people secretly think, what individuals are trying to think and what things they are trying to purvey, get other people to think and act. Right, right. It's become all about identifying the heretics. And they may not be religious heretics now, but they're ideological heretics. Mm. Ideology or, or the concept of the nation or the concept of race has stepped into this space that was previously religious. And whenever we think about the efforts to reunify Europe after Augustine, they all involve an attempt to reunify Europe on a very thick line that's much thicker than the line that the Romans themselves would have reunified Europe on. If you look at the Germans, the, the fascism and the emphasis on German supremacy, if you look at Napoleon, it's it's a bit French supremacist. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's certainly... I got a lot, a lot of political baggage hooked onto it. Uh, if you look at, say, Charles V, the Habsburg emperor, he was committed to a kind of Catholic unity. Mm. And uh, he, he eventually was unable to deliver that and, and his empire broke up. All of these efforts fail because they're all based on trying to secure 
thicker unity than is possible. Mm. I, I, and yet we can't get people to accept a unity that is based on something thinner. Mm. And I think that's what's interesting is, is that that thick uniform, uniformity is incredibly useful often. It, it was found by those states in getting people to sacrifice a lot more for their nation, dedicate more and work harder and that sort of thing. But as soon as it gets beyond a nation state or even a, it transcends to a bigger nation state, it becomes incredibly difficult. And we're seeing that today in the Middle East where people are trying to prescribe very fixed ideas of whether Arabness or Sunnism and that sort of thing, which just makes that sort of um, centrality and, um, and stability impossible, where you have these incredibly thick um, ideas of uniformity. And we're seeing that in Europe at the moment with the ideas of what the European Union should be like, whether the people should have economic uniformity whether people should have some sort of political uniformity of like, oh, we should all be centrist or liberals and that sort of thing. And you're never going to get nations to agree, especially if nations then decide to fight on who should decide the uniformity. Hmm. Uh, and, ancient. Mm, Sorry. And it's, it's interesting whether, as you say, Ben, is, is that I think people now expect a sort of legitimacy in the uniformity that by having this thick uniformity, you then legitimate your position. You can say, look, it's based on, right? Let's, for hypothetically, it's based on laws. It's based on the king who we, or sovereign, which we believe has derived from legitimate means. It's based on ethos. It's based on religion. Therefore, that's why this nation state is legitimate. And if we have anything thinner like that, thinner than that, say, oh, we all agree on the same laws and the same same state, then people feel, well, that doesn't feel very legitimate. That feels very fragile. That could just change. Right, right. People have more and more ambitious and thick legitimation criteria for states, and this makes it very hard for it to be met at scale. Hmm. Uh, and I, I would think it's it's very hard even to meet it at the level of our current nation states, and many of them are able to do it simply because they already exist and already possess a lot of physical power. But this is in part why there are these constant movements for devolution, mm. because even the nation state feels too far removed from the individual experience. And so there's constantly a desire to get a state that's more local, that can more uh, fully reflect your thick content. And this constantly pulls away at and undermines political projects. But Edmund, you had a question or, or a thought? Yeah. You want to get in? To what extent did the ancients have the kind of thin legitimation stories um, we're talking about? Or could you argue, for instance, that Plato's Utopia has a at least a slightly thicker legitimation story, if not a substantially thicker one than the Roman Empire, um, through its emphasis on the good, um, on morality, is something that um, is something that is a pre-political justification for the state. Yeah, so I would I would say to some degree Plato's version is is significantly thicker than mm. Greek or Roman states that actually existed. I would, however push back a little bit in that I think if you look at a lot of the Platonists and Aristotelians, uh, whether Plato or Aristotle themselves or the people who come after them, mm. they don't have the same level of confidence in a fixed, noble, uh, revealed 
conception of the good that the Christian theorists will Mm -hmm. have. And so philosophy becomes a method. The Socratic method of debating and discussing is a method by which you are supposed to pursue the truth and pursue the good for the Greeks and for the Romans. And virtue is is something that is a process that you continue to chase Mm. for them. Right. But they're less likely than the Christians to simply straightforwardly declare that it involves some list of things that everyone has to do or everyone has to share. It's more of a of a method than an answer. The good for the Greeks is more of a more of a method than an answer. It's more of a process, more mm. of a journey than a destination. Yeah. But is that yeah. Uh, sorry. Would you agree with that, Ray? Yeah, I think but one of the biggest um ways of trying to achieve that in the in the ancient world was at, um eastern institutions of divine kingship where not necessarily had this kind of fixed idea of what ideology or whatever people had to fix but you believed that the sovereign was descended from a god and in that in some way their orders and their law and their statements were derived from sort some sort of a material metaphysical realm and right. you see that somewhat in in the Greeks later on after Alexander the Great, with Alexander's exis- insistence that he was uh, a son of Zeus, um, mm. that he was. I think he gets declared later on Ra reborn because he he takes on the um, Egyptian divine descriptions and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's that's most effective for the Greeks and to a lesser extent for the Romans in the context of ruling Egypt and perhaps some of the quite eastern uh, provinces that the Romans only briefly hold, like Mesopotamia, mm. but, uh, and maybe to some degree in, say, Syria. Mm. And this is, this is not necessarily the legitimation story that the Romans are going to yeah. tell to people in Italy, but it's a legitimation story that that's already cases, exists— yeah. In those east uh, eastern regions, that comes down from previous kinds of empires which existed in those places, and which the Greeks and the Romans are happy to appropriate when they come to occupy those locations. Mm. But I would I would portray them as supplementary legitimation yeah. stories. If you were to depict a Roman yeah. Empire uh, emperor as legitimate primarily because of uh, you know, coming uh, from the divine Augustus or from the divine Julius or something, uh, that I think would be a misrepresentation. That legitimation story is a supplementary story for people mainly living in eastern provinces who are accustomed to the idea that the pharaoh is divine. Mm. Mm. But um, I think it was interesting that you brought up the kind of conceptions of the good and kind of virtues and whether... Um, legitimacy comes from adherence to those because um, famously that's a big part of um, Cicero of his ideas of justicia and that sort of thing that the state should pursue justice and that sort of thing and his idea of um, justice is that um, is essentially things act in accordance with what they should they should act in accordance to their potential and what they're meant to do and Augustine very much feels that this is the function of not only the state but also the individual and Cicero believed that as well but that um, in this idea and this confidence of the good is that Augustine makes this criticizes Cicero despite how much it's kind of interesting how much Augustine uses Cicero like quotes him like almost like a philosophy textbook for definitions of phrases and words and that sort of thing is is that Augustine stresses that virtues like justice temperance and that sort of thing gain their value not only from god but continue forever 
Cicero was very much in the belief that the res publica kind of only applies to the material world. It's to the republic. It's to the state. Whilst Augustine believes these are universal principles that survive, because Cicero even says, well, if we live in, if we reach Elysium, what, why do we need justice? Why do we need temperance? Because there'll be nothing to to want for. There'll be no crime, etc. Why do we need these things? While Augustine believes that these things are always important and always legitimate, even in the next life, because they derive from the good. And Cicero, as Ben was saying, is, is, is someone who's much more hesitant because they're not sure what it is. And it's much more a journey to find out what it is. You're always grasping at it, but you could never say fully what it means in the same sense. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I have students reading Greeks and Romans, sometimes they, they want me to tell them what precisely the good means for Greeks and Romans. And you can't straightforwardly answer that because it, it is a process. And d- different Greek and different Roman authors will have different levels of transparency, translucency, or opacity in terms of their attitude to how knowable the good is. Some of them will view it as something that you can really know very little about, mostly mm. opaque. Uh, some of them will view it as, as quite transparent, but the bulk of them will view it as rather translucent where there's value in trying to learn things about it. There's value from engaging in the philosophical process, but it's not something where you're going to be so certain that you can call an end to that process and declare victory. Yeah. Mm. So pre-theological politics wasn't uh, as... Uh, kind of the notion, the Nietzschean notion of post-theological politics as being without value. Uh, instead, pre-theological politics and antiquity was in a sense moral politics, but it was moral politics where morality or the good was, yeah, as you say, translucent, something that was a process rather than uh, something that is um, obvious to everyone. Right. And for that reason, the struggle to keep cities virtuous and to keep populations virtuous is a struggle to keep them on this path of pursuing the good Mm. and pursuing the true. And it's a path where you don't necessarily proceed toward an end point, but where you are struggling even just to stay where you are at Mm. with the level of of knowledge of the truth or the good where where it is. Plato, in his discussion of the cycle of regimes, emphasizes how easy it is for a polity to end up moving further away from the good, further away from the truth, how easy it is to lose knowledge about these things. And so it's a struggle not not to simply straightforwardly implement the truth, but even just to remain on a path mm-hmm. that is oriented toward it. Right. It's so easy for Plato to confuse other things for the final end, and so easy for Aristotle to, to get the telos wrong, to get the final end wrong. Right. Although... Plato and Aristotle were themselves confident that it did have something to do with contemplation as the the ultimate route towards that good. Right, right. They have a lot of confidence in the value of the philosophical method, but they that doesn't mean that they have full confidence in the answers that they've come to right. from that method. Mm. Right. And and you but you will see variety in the level of confidence and the the schools throughout the period of antiquity because you've got to remember that the period of of antiquity is very very long, many hundreds of years. The academy and the lyceum will go through periods where they're run by skeptics, periods where they're run by people who are quite confident, period where periods where it's more mixed. Uh, there are a 
huge number of, of Greek and Roman writers who unfortunately we have lost, who we have some inkling took positions ranging from very skeptical to very confident. Right. Uh, but at no point did the states become married to a particular really, really souped up, quite confident version right. of Platonism or Aristotelianism uh, until Christianity, which appropriates quite a bit mm. of Platonism and Aristotelianism. Uh, Platonism, I would argue, largely through Augustine. Aristotelianism mm. at a later point, largely through Aquinas. Aquinas yeah. mm. So Augustine. Although yeah. Rafe, you may yeah. find that a little bit reductive. Um, well, it, well, the issue is is that essentially quite a few people use use both of them. It's just that, for instance, Th- Thomas Aquinas is much more blatant because he will. He, it's quite interesting in terms of answers uh, in his questions and answers. He'll have something like, "Well, Augustine says this, so it must adhere to this." And then in the same sentence sometimes, he'll go, well, Aristotle says this, so it must be true. You know, he, he equates church thinkers and also sometimes scripture with Aristotelian logic. I think it's just mm. more blatant. But there are subtle blatancies, for instance, in uh, Maximus the Confessor, who's a big patristic figure in the um, 800s, I, th- I think it is, 800s, um, who very straightforwardly uses phrases to do with divine desire, desire for the good, and he uses the phrase motion, which is a very Aristotelian way of thinking about it, of motion, of the universe being in motion, the God as something that produces motion. Everything is moved through motion, that sort of thing. A motion of desire and that sort of thing. But yes, it's, it's, it's essentially correct, yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, yeah, maybe we ought to add Maximus. Maybe we, we should have a Maximus topic in Paul 7. How much has he written? Is it, um, is it he's, enough? he's written a lot. Um, the issue is, is he's quite some, oh, I've forgotten the name. Uh, is it, it's like an ascetic. He's like quite anti-political. Ah, that's why we wouldn't have him in Paul 7. There is a little bit of a gap in terms of singular set authors for Paul 7. We go from Augustine straight to Aquinas and nobody in the middle mm. gets read as, as a singular set author. Some of them are in group topics, mm. uh, survey topics, but there is no singular set author between Augustine and Aquinas. Of religious note, you mean? Uh, of, of any kind uh-huh. on Paul 7. Paul 7, uh, which is the history of political thought to 1700, goes Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, uh, Augustine, Aquinas, more, and then it goes Machiavelli, Hobbes, Locke. Mm. Mm. But there are, of course, a number of survey topics which take in a lot of people in between those. Yeah. But in terms of singular set author, set piece topics, those are that's the series for Paul Seven. Okay. So where did the thickening of the legitimation stories begin? Do you think? W- was an immediate catalyst, I imagine, the crisis of the third century and thus the subsequent adoption of Christianity as the, uh, as the Roman Empire's official um, religions in a couple of edicts at the beginning and end of the, mm. uh, uh, of the fourth century. Um, or was the thickening of the legitimation stories something that had begun already or something that really got set in later? What, what kind of story do you think we can tell about causally why this happened? Well, I, I would say that it becomes, it starts to 
become possible because of the crisis of the third century. The crisis of the third century is a period when the Roman Empire goes through a very large number of emperors because the Roman Empire rests on, you've got to demonstrate that you have the charisma of Augustus and what Augustus was able to do was keep peace, right? Right. So anytime a usurper challenges you, a usurper's challenge is itself evidence that you may lack the charisma of Augustus (laughs) and be unable to keep the peace. Uh So a usurper is delegitimating by the fact of existing And you have to prove that you deserve the throne by crushing the usurper because, of course, that's what Augustus would do if he was in your shoes. So uh, this gradually incentivizes and creates an opening for more usurpations and more civil wars in the Principate. And it takes a long time for this to become really endemic. The crisis of the third century happens uh, close to 300 years after the death of Augustus. Mm. But it's, it's quite severe, and when it comes to an end, uh, there are several emperors involved in the end, but of course, Constantine, one of the mechanisms that Constantine uses to try to shore up the empire is to have it adopt Christianity and become more embedded mm. with a particular theological, uh, thick theological perspective, among other things. You know, for instance, the, the, uh, what they call the dominant. This is the regime that is created after the Principate in the, in the late Roman Empire. Uh, the dominant also tries to concentrate legions in the hands of smaller numbers of people to prevent usurpations. Mm. But the, the, that small number of people, what, what they, they call the tetrarchy, uh, still ends up having a lot of infighting within itself, uh, albeit less than during the crisis. So, Constantine tries to add this religious dynamic, but that in and of itself, I do not think is enough to really thicken the religious criteria because in the Eastern Roman Empire, you continue to have the doctrine of Caesaropapism, the notion that the Eastern Roman Emperor is supreme over the Mm. patriarch of Constantinople. And so it remains the case that the Eastern Roman Emperor may make all sorts of edicts about what the content of Christianity is And even if people may theologically disagree with those edicts, the supremacy of the political over the religious is still maintained in the East because you have a continuity of that Eastern Roman Empire as a set of institutions. And in states that have an Orthodox church, like for instance, the Russian state today, you still see that church very much serving the state and acting as an instrument of the state rather than... Uh, something from which the state could be judged. Mm. Mm. And I think what's distinctive is that in the Western Empire, not only does the emperor become embedded with religion, but the empire then collapses. And these barbarian kings are trying to establish legitimacy over populations that are Roman and uh, in many cases increasingly Christian, and don't see why they ought to accept these kings. Mm. And these kings are relatively weak because they're new. There's a huge number of them. They don't occupy very large territories. And one of the ways they establish legitimacy is by making deals with the Pope to recognize Mm. the Pope and to tithe to the Pope to build Catholic churches and support the church in exchange for papal recognition— and for the Pope to support the narrative of the king as as uh, selected by God through some kind of divine right. I, I think— in, and, yeah. 
What, what was that, Ray? I, I think an issue is as well is the thickening of uniformity and that, and that legitimacy comes because not only just because people feel that it should get bigger, but because the legitimacy in the West of granted by the law and the institutions lacks because those institutions are much weaker. And I think you can see that most clearly in Charlemagne's empire, where it is trying to replicate the Roman state. In some ways, it is quite large. It could easily be argued that this is a good Christian attempt to reform the Western empire. Yet it is incredibly based on localism, where you have this double legitimacy story, which reeks of desperation, where on one level you're saying it is legitimated because it's the heir to Rome. This has been authenticated by the Pope. And in other ways, you're saying Charlemagne is the king because he's descended from what is what was then called Salic law, which is a very local, um, I think it's like, it's Frankish, but it's sort of like Germanic. And the issue is, is then you then have immediately this split because uh, Salic law has a, a legal um, aspect of it, um, inheritance aspects known as gavelkind, where your lands and titles are distributed often equally among your kids, which then means not only, A, are your institutions not that strong enough to command respect that you need thickening in other areas, but mm. different areas of legitimacy are able to compete with each other, in which you can try and compete in the religious is one of the main ones, which leads to one of the biggest issues of the uh, probably the uh, pre-modern era, where the Pope begins to argue that the emperor in the West is emperor because he's crowned by the Pope. So who is more important in that relationship, the emperor or the guy who crowns him? And very much the Pope, especially in the crisis in the uh, 1080s, um, going onwards, but it's a, it's it's a wider issue, and it, we could spend hours talking about this of the investiture issue, who selects bishops, yeah. and that sort of thing. Is that the Pope begins to mess with that legitimacy mechanic for power? Is that the Pope realizes that increasingly kings are heavily reliant on theological endorsement, both as on an individual level and for the very recognition of their institution and their right to be in the throne. So thickening is required to legitimate your position on the throne and increasingly in the modern era get away from reliance on an unreliable arbitrator who very easily can mess with it just for his own uh, his own power hmm. yeah yeah and i think that a big feature of this is that you can't trade on the other legitimation narratives that would have held purchase mm. for subjects there, which have to do with being Augustus and having the charisma of Augustus and securing the peace, because no one during this period is really able to secure the peace over enough territory mm. in a full and total and complete way. And that leaves you bereft of most of the other kinds of legitimation stories that heads of the Roman state would tell people, apart from the religious one, that is still available to you through the Pope. And, and so as the kings start to consolidate and they get bigger states later in the medieval period, then they'll look to try to get out from under the Pope and they'll try to use other alternative mechanisms to do that, including, for instance, efforts like Hobbes's effort to go back to some kind of mm. unity that is purely state-based, where the king has a direct uh, 
line to the subject, and the subject has direct lines of obedience to the monarch without having to have that obedience mediated through the church or through vassalage ties, which Mm -hmm. is the other thing that really ties down kings in the early Middle Ages, the fact that most of their subjects are not bound directly to them, but bound to local nobles who are bound to dukes, who are bound to the king. Uh, And so for as, as the Middle Ages progresses, the kings will try to weaken both the nobility and the church, but their attempt to establish this direct line uh, because it's an attempt to go back to a thinner kind of relationship between state and subject, conflicts with this, at this point, deeply ingrained legitimation criteria that the state should not just provide peace or provide order, but that it should provide some kind of good or be in alignment with mm-hmm. some kind of greater set of values. And that's what I think ultimately kills the absolute monarchs as they start to move into the 1600s and 1700s is that they're they're trying to get away with a legitimation story that is as if Christianity didn't really happen. It's as if the experience of the Middle Ages didn't really happen. And it's one thing to not make the move to attach yourself to that religious legitimating story. It's another thing to have attached the state to that story and then to try to detach the state from that story. Mm. And I guess that's kind of what motivated the whole episode is to talk about how Even now that people are increasingly, especially in Europe, less religious than they used to be, this kind of thick demand for the state to reflect your deeply felt values, beliefs, culture, distinctiveness is so thoroughly ingrained now that it manifests through ideology, Mm. through race, through lots of other kinds of divisions that may, from the point of view of uh, reflective morality strike us as deeply, deeply arbitrary and unsettling. Mm. Is it ironic that this has gone hand in hand, this thickening of the legitimation stories of states, um, with at least ostensibly or allegedly with the rise of uh, Nietzschean moral scepticism um, about the possibility of realizing something that is objective at all. Um, mm. is, is there something ironic about the, the simultaneous retreat into subjectivities, whether that be individual subjectivities or group subjectivities, um, combined with the fact that our legitimation stories are so much thicker than they once were? Mm. Or, or is it unsurprising that the fact that the legitimation stories are uh, more narrow now gives rise to stories that need to be thicker to justify that narrowness. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of perverse combination because on the one hand, you now have thicker legitimation stories than I think you had 100 years ago or 200 years ago. People want a lot more of their beliefs reflected at them by the state than they did even in, say, the 1910s or the 1920s, What was like I the not-my-president movement? Right, right. I, people increasingly want the state to deliver on huge baskets of goods, including not just distributive goods, but recognition goods. These are not the kinds of things that you could typically demand from a state 100 years ago. The state 100 years ago was a night watchman state that did not promise you altogether that much. Um, I mean, it wasn't straightforwardly and completely and totally a night watchman state, but that was a much larger percentage of what it did. Right. And- now people want not just a welfare state, but also a lot of recognition, a lot of uh, 
and a lot of abstract values to be embodied by the state. And of course, those abstract values started getting going earlier with notions like liberty or equality, but they've gotten a lot more demanding as time has gone on. And yet at the same time, because they've dropped the belief in objective morality, they've also dropped the belief that, they can a- that we can actually unify people in any genuine way. So people now make thicker demands than ever, but they also don't believe, because they're not moral realists and don't believe in objective truth, that unity is actually possible. So that means that we have people who want uh, ever more distinctiveness and fragmentation. And from a pragmatic standpoint, it is very difficult to run an increasingly integrated world, an increasingly globalized world, with increasingly fragmented and local institutions. Right. So theological politics wants, to use that general term, wants to moralize everything, but also doesn't want to accept the platonic objective moral claims that might go along with that. Right. And it produces a bit of a contradiction in our politics that we have this impulse to have our thick content reflected back at us, but um, at the same time, we're unwilling to acknowledge that if you actually want that in practice at any kind of scale, you have to impose things on other people Mm. who may disagree with you. Which is and we're paralyzed by that. Which is yeah. Schmidt's like one of his primary criticisms of liberalism. And that's the element of the argument that I think is is worth preserving. And that's part of why I think it's still valuable for students to read Schmidt, is that there is this big tension in trying to have pluralism and have beliefs at the same time. It's it's the big tension that has run through political thought throughout modernity, is that we want to survive, we want stable order, we, which means we need big structures to oversee a very complicated world where there's lots of ways for things to go wrong. But at the same time, we want that order to reflect our beliefs and reflect our values in some kind of thick way. Right. And it's very hard to have that if you're going to claim simultaneously that you don't actually believe that the values are universal. Mm. So this is, in a way, the long-term legacy of the rise, the contradictions of, and the eventual fall of the Roman Empire, that we've got uh, these high expectations due to both the um, thickening of legitimation stories, due to the Christianization of Rome, together with the thickening that accompanied the rise of individualism and capitalism, which also, as Walter Schiedel argues in his latest book, released a couple of weeks ago, um, was due to the interstate competition that the fall of Rome generated. And so we've got these rising uh, expectations about what we want from states, these thick legitimation stories. But because we've got a multi-state system and we've got separate political units, we don't have the ability to fulfil all these expectations. And then because of the commitment to subjectivity, not only do we struggle to do it as a matter of ability, but we also increasingly don't believe that we should do the things that are necessary to fulfill our own expectations. Mm. We have expectations that require creating forms of unity politically that we find objectionable on the basis of liberal pluralism. Right. And so we kind of have to make a choice either to have a quite pluralistic world that aspires to less 
or to have a world that aspires to more. But because of that, it, we need to make serious decisions about what we think is right and wrong. Because if we don't make serious decisions about that and we say it's a free-for-all, then we end up with aesthetic forms of unity that are potentially arbitrary and exclusive on the basis of nothing that matters. So something really. So something thinner than the demands of the legitimation stories today, but thicker than the demands of, say, Greek city-states in antiquity? Or uh, is, 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 is that what's plausible now uh, uh, between excessive thinness and excessive thickness? Well, I think if you're willing to take your thickness seriously, you can run with it to a point. Okay. But you have to you have to deal with the reality that wanting thicker stuff means that you aren't going to be able to have unity with as many people, with as wide a, a set of people. Right. Right. You end up with a state that's narrower that can only include a narrower set of people. And right now, we want a state that includes everybody. But we also want a state that stands for each person's values at the same time as everybody else's in this very thick way. And you can't have a state that does that. We have to make a decision here. And there are a number of different ways we could make the decision such that it would produce something that would, could be stable at least to a point, at least at some size. Hmm. But we can't we can't have it both ways. We can't have both unity and distinctiveness at the same time. To have unity, you have to give up distinctiveness. Hmm. And to have distinctiveness, you have to give up unity. And that's something that I think in general we don't seem to understand right now in this moment historically. Is that the same with thickness or th- and thinness or is any unity that we achieve today necessarily one that involves uh, obviously not too thick a legitimation story, but a thicker legitimation story than might have been possible in ancient empires, say? Or does it need to be as thin as ancient empires? I don't think we could ever uh, go back oh, sure. to that. I don't think that we could, and I don't want to. I, I want a state that is committed to not exploiting people and and so on. Right. I have a lot of values that I think are politically really important. But if we're going to have those values, we have to take them seriously. And we have to realize that in having those values, you know, that means that people may get excluded. And we have to think really carefully about the values that we choose, because uh, if we don't choose our values carefully, or if we say, well, values are just a matter of subjective desire, pick whatever you feel like picking, right? we could end up with really bad states. Right, right. So if we're not willing to go back to something like what the ancients were doing, then we need to be really careful and take really seriously the consequences of having values. We have to take values seriously and take seriously the political consequences of caring about thick stuff. So we don't just want to balance between uh, thickness and thinness. We want to choose those values which best satisfy the greatest possible unity. And I think that there's also a limit to how thick you can make it and have exactly. anything work out. Okay, because so, yeah. if you make something really, really thick, right. then it will. It, you can't have a unity larger than yourself. You know, you can imagine the libertarian who wants to have a microstate 
you know, if you make it thick enough, you you can't include right. anyone in it. So, we want so as soon yeah. as you want to have a society with others, you have to accept the possibility that that society won't totally reflect your will 100% of the time. Right. And so we want our will reflected a larger percent of the time than the ancients, and we won't put up with a state that reflects our will as rarely as an ancient state would. But of course, we also can't have a state that is completely about us. We can't have states that are projections of our egos or our personal feelings. Mm -hmm. We have to have something somewhere in between. It's clear that we can't have something as thin as the ancient state. It's clear that we can't have something as thick as what the libertarian wants. Right. But then if we're going to have something that is thicker than the ancient state, we have to be very careful about what we pick, because if we pick the wrong thing, we could end up really, really, really in trouble. It's back to Aristotle. We want a golden mean between thick and thin, but we need to choose the right values for the right reasons. (laughs) And that means taking seriously the process of selecting values and not throwing up your hands and saying it's a subjective game, pick Mm. whatever you want. Right, right. Nice. Okay, well, I think that's about all I had in mind for today. Anybody have anything they want to say before we go? Um, I don't think so, no. I think we've covered all the the bases. So thanks for listening, guys. I know it took us a while to kind of dig through this. This is a kind of meaty episode. Thank thank you guys for listening, and thanks so much to Rafe for joining us today. We benefited immensely, immensely from the work you've done on Augustine and Schmidt and the Germans and and Weimar Germany. It's just terrific to have you with us. So thanks, Rafe. Thank Thank you you so much, Rafe. Thanks. Thank you for having me. All right. So thank you guys for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.